Thank you so much, Ensemble. Take your Bible, please turn to Genesis 42. We've been working our way through this wonderful series uh, in the book of Genesis, this wonderful story, I should say, of Joseph, a life in God's hands, a man who was mistreated and abused in many different ways, and yet he totally left himself in God's hands. You know, a, few, uh, a couple years ago, maybe it was a year ago, I don't remember exactly, um, I received a letter from someone here in the church, and it was a handwritten note. I opened it up, and inside the letter it said, Pastor Marshall, I need, to, I need to ask your forgiveness. I have been stealing snacks from the patch closet now for a long time. And it was wrong of me to do that. I know I am a church member. Do I have to forfeit my church membership because I've been doing this? I felt terrible this person had been carrying this guilt for a while and didn't know what to do with it, so they reached out. And I responded back, and I said, of course you're forgiven. Just don't do it again. <laughs> when we were, a lot of you know this story, but as kids, when we were uh, accused of lying, my mother would line us up in the kitchen, and she had us do this uh, thing where she said, okay, if you're lying, your tongue turns black, and so you need to stick your tongue out, and we'll see which one of you is lying. And we'd go down the line, and one by one, we'd stick our tongues out, and then the one guilty party would always do something like this. And she would say, I knew it. And we thought it was magic. We thought it was crazy. For the long, we did not understand. Then one day she felt guilty about lying to us. <laughs> so she lined us up and she says, now guys, I'm going to tell you something. I, I did not tell you the truth. Your tongue does not turn black when you lie. That's a lie. I am sorry. That was sinful. It was wrong of me. I should have trusted the Lord. I should not have told you that lie. Now, which one of you did it? Stick out your tongues. <laughs> and we really weren't sure whether she was lying then or now. You know, um, guilt is a really tricky thing, isn't it? It is something that the world really doesn't know what to do with. Uh, you talk to secular psychologists, they don't know how to handle when someone comes in with crippling guilt. In fact, if you were to face overwhelming feelings of guilt and you were to try to receive help from someone who's worldly, who does not understand the Bible, um, you will get many, many different solutions for how to handle your guilt. Some people will try to talk you out of your guilty feelings. They'll say, well, these feelings are just internal to you, and they don't really, they're making you feel bad, and really the goal of life should be to feel good. And so you should get rid of these feelings. You should suppress them. You should get rid of them. It's an unhelpful emotion, say some psychiatrists. But is this really right? How should you deal with guilt? Should you ignore it? Should you move on? Should you forgive yourself, some people say? Should you do these things? So, you know, when you haven't dealt with your past in the right way, the biblical way, the past will make demands on your life. The title of the message this morning is Facing a Guilty Past. And one conflict in this story has been resolved. We've seen Joseph, who was sold unjustly into slavery, accused unjustly of abusing his master's wife, thrown into prison. He now is exalted and now sits at the right hand of Pharaoh, and he's making administrative executive decisions for the nation of Egypt to guide them through these years of plenty until they come to the years of famine. And then the years of famine come, and Joseph's wisdom are seen. This conflict has been resolved, but not everything has been resolved. 
Because the brothers who had sinned against Joseph had never dealt with their sin properly. They never confessed, and they had never repented. And because they had never dealt with their sin, they carried an incredible amount of crushing guilt on their life. And that guilt was getting ready to show itself out in this next chapter. Let's go to the Lord and ask for his wisdom as we open his word and deal with our own hearts this morning. Lord, today we ask for you to peel back the layers of our heart. We ask for your word to act like that knife, that sharp, that two-edged sword that pierces the division of soul and spirit, Lord, that can show us our sin. We pray for your Holy Spirit, which is, who is called the, the one who convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Lord, convict us today of where we perhaps have undealt with, unreconciled guilt in our past, or we need to deal with it properly, or else that guilt will make demands on our life. And so, Lord, even though we, many here today, claim to know you as Savior, are professing Christians, no doubt many need to deal with something today that you're calling us to deal with, calling us to deal with our sin, calling us to deal with our guilt. And so, Father, we ask you today to have free course to move among us, that your word as it comes out of my mouth and is in our hands, Lord, that you would use it mightily. Prohibit me, Lord, from saying something I shouldn't. Keep me uh, in, the, in the truth here, in the word before us, and help us to see your word as it works in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, guilt, as I mentioned, uh, does a lot to us. It demands a lot of us. In fact, this chapter in many ways sets the stage for the repentance that should come. It's, it's not a very happy chapter, and I apologize on the front end that that we don't get to leave with warm fuzzies here on a beautiful uh, spring morning. But I want us to consider these things because God calls us to consider truth even when it's hard. And sometimes there are things we have to deal with that we, don't, we wouldn't necessarily pick out of a list if we could. But God's word is perfect, it's complete, and it's there for us to learn from. And I think there's a lot here to, today that we should learn from. Look, look with me in point number one. We're going to see the first five verses that unconfessed guilt can impact your relationships with other people. We're not just talking here about subjective guilty feelings you might have about something that you regret. When I'm talking about sin or guilt impacting you, I'm talking about your objective guilt. And what you've done makes you guilty. Let's read these verses here and see how these relationships were impacted by this unconfessed, undealt with guilt. Verse 1, when Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, remember they're in a famine now, Jacob, Joseph's father, said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there that we may live and not die. There is a subtle jab at the brothers here from their father. He's an older man. He looks at these grown men who are staring at each other, not knowing what to do. They are paralyzed. They are doing nothing. In fact, I identify this is the first way that guilt defined them. It defined them by give, making them passive. Guilt often makes you a passive person in your relationships with other people. You are paralyzed by your own guilt, and you don't do anything. I know this by talking to people. People who suffer from an incredible amount of guilt often don't do much when it comes to relationships. They are paralyzed by fear, and paralyzed is a good word here because they are guilty about their past, and I don't know exactly why they wouldn't go to Egypt. Maybe they're worried what they're going to find there. 
We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us why they're standing around, but the picture is very, very vivid. That Joseph's sitting there, I mean, that uh, Jacob's looking at his sons who are kind of sitting around in a circle saying, what do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? Oh, I don't know. Like just going around and driving their father insane. But I think unresolved guilt works its way into their passivity about life. It's like they're in a stupor. They're sitting around looking at each other. They're waiting for someone else to take the first step. And their father, it says in verse 1 and verse 2, had both seen and heard that there was grain in Egypt. The brothers were either ignorant of this, or more likely, they were apathetic at their lives at this point. They had, they had been so guilty that their, their lives are just apathetic. They're just thinking about, well, does this really matter anymore? I believe that we have to be careful because your relationships with others will be defined by passivity if you carry intense, personal, unresolved guilt in your life. Secondly, you'll notice that Jacob is defined by his paranoia. Look at verses 3 through 5. Fear, paranoia, consumes him. And, and honestly, it does not feel like a completely irrational fear. He had lost a son before. And some scholars have noted that the way he's going to speak in a moment indicates that he suspected that his son's behavior may have had something to do with Joseph's disappearance. We don't know for certain, but look at verse 3. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, and Jacob did not send Joseph's brothers Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, lest some calamity or some evil befall him. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was great. This loss paralyzed Jacob to the degree that he would send all the other men, but he would not send his son Benjamin. He, he was fearful. He was thinking about how this would impact his son. He did not want to lose this last son who was connected to his beloved wife, Rachel. Joseph is already gone, now Benjamin. That's a very rational thing, but he was still kind of paranoid or very fearful about this. That's what he said, and we see this play out later as well, that, that Jacob, because of his loss, has turned into a very fearful person. He's afraid of losing more, and that's often what happens when people in your life can turn this way. This can happen. Your sin, your unresolved guilt can actually have impact not only on you. I often say that sin has a blast radius. It has an impact on the people around you, and here it was impacting their father. I think it's very likely that just as he had shown favoritism towards Joseph, now he shows favoritism towards, benefit and, or towards Benjamin, and, and guilt will impact all those around you. Don't miss that this was a fear that was based on a lie that had been told him by his own sons. His sons had said, we didn't ever see Joseph. Is this his coat? We found it in the wilderness, and now Jacob has in his mind, if I send this son by himself or with my other sons, he might, just like Joseph, be lost in the wilderness. He had based his decision-making on a lie that had been told to him that he did not understand was a lie. His fears, his paranoia was based on something he had been told. And the horror here is their brothers who saw their father deteriorate into a bitter, fearful man, all because something they had done, a lie they had told him, and they knew it, but they let it happen. See, see unreconciled guilt will, will really harm your relationships. You might think it's nothing, but it will really harm your relationships. And secondly, we'll see, starting in verse 6, that unreconciled guilt or unconfessed sin or guilt will follow you. Look at verses 6 through 17. We're going to see how God confronts them with their sin. And I, I maintain that God will confront you with your sin. God will bring things into your life that will confront you with your sin. And, and God's going to use 
these circumstances to confront Joseph's brothers with their sin against Joseph. And so look at verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land. That's all the land of Egypt. And he was he who sold all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came, and they bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. And Joseph saw his brothers, and he recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. And he said to them, where do you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. Then he gives an accusation against them. Verse 8, Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land or the barrenness of the land. Notice how many times the words of God tells us that Joseph recognized his brothers. He recognized them. He recognized them. He saw them. He recognized them. But they did not recognize him. Go back to the first time we see Joseph's brothers seeing Joseph from afar. There's Joseph coming in his coat of many colors across the fields towards them while they're sitting there with their their sheep. And they see Joseph coming and they recognize him, same word, immediately. They say, here comes that dreamer. From afar off, they recognize the way he walked, the way he dressed, and the way he he was. And they said, there there he is. There's that dreamer. We're going to see what becomes of his dreams. Now they are face to face with their brother. They are standing right there with him, and they see him, and they don't recognize him. Joseph is right there in front of them, and they do not recognize him, probably because of his, his Egyptian uh, clothes, his Egyptian um, hair, everything that he had was very Egyptian. But here he is also in a position of authority. He is standing over them as, a, as an authority figure, and they had no idea that this was their brother. And I want you to notice also not only the recognition, but the remembrance that Joseph, it says, remembered his dreams. Verse 9, Joseph remembered his dreams. And remember in the last chapter, in fact, if you go back to chapter 41 in verse 50, it says that Joseph had two sons. One of his sons, verse 51, was called Manasseh, for God has made me forget all my toil in all my father's house. Joseph has tried his best to forget about the past and forget about the trouble and forget about the toils of his family. And despite all of that work to forget, notice what happens. He sees his brothers and all the memories come flooding back. And he remembers the dreams. Now, you might be tempted to think, as I was when I was studying this, that now that his brothers have bowed down before Joseph, that his dreams have been fulfilled, that the promise that God made to him has been answered, but not so fast. The dreams that Joseph had involved not just 10 of his brothers, but all of his brothers and his father and mother, his parental figure. So Joseph is seeing a partial fulfillment, but not a full fulfillment of his dream. There are only 10 brothers standing there before him. Where is the 11th? And I want you to wonder what Joseph is thinking at this point. I know what happened to me, a favored son of Rachel. I wonder what happened to Benjamin, a favored son of Rachel. Joseph is seeing his brothers, and he is not sure that they're changed men. Let's keep reading. We see restoration because over the next several chapters, God is working to restore his family and Joseph is working to restore his family through a series of tests of their character. Verse, th- verse 10, and he said to them, no, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. Notice the accusation, you are spies. They come back with, we are honest. I, I cannot pass by when he says in verse 11, we are all one man's sons, they do not realize that indeed Joseph is part of that group of one man's sons. 
And we keep going to verse 12. He said to them, no, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. That's just a way of saying you've come to spy out our vulnerabilities, our weaknesses. And they said, no, your servants are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no more. They claim to be honest men, but, but we know better from their story. They are not honest men. They're very di- in fact, if there is one word that characterizes the entire family tree, it's dishonesty. Jacob and Esau, dishonesty. Rachel and Leah and Laban, dishonesty. Every step along the way, there has been trickery and dishonesty, anything but honesty. And they claim we are honest men. And with every accusation that Joseph makes, he's able to extract more and more information about their situation about their life at home, about their family. So he begins to test their word and their character. Verse 14, Joseph said to them, it is as I spoke to you saying you are spies. Aha, he says, there's no way that you are 12 brothers and one is at home. In this manner, you shall, here's a key phrase, you shall be tested. This is setting the stage for all that's going to come. In this manner, you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you, let him bring your brother and you shall be kept in prison, and your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison three days. He wanted to test as to what they said, whether it was true. That's what he says he's doing. But actually, that's not what Joseph is doing, because Joseph knows that what they're saying is true. He knows that they're all brothers of one man and that there are 12 brothers and that one's probably at home and that he's here, the one that is gone or missing, the one that is no more. So he knows that it's true. What he's actually doing is not testing to see whether they're really speaking the truth. He's testing to see whether the character has changed. If we keep going, we see how we tested their character because he says the younger brother had to be brought from Canaan. That means one of the brothers was to go to Canaan to bring Benjamin with him. And while he was gone, the rest of the brothers had to remain in prison. So he put them in prison for three days. And every step along the way, uh, Joseph was provoking them. He was saying things to them that that, that made them think about what they did to him. Putting them in prison would have caused them to think about what they had done to their brother. He wanted to know whether they had forgotten about him, whether they still carried the burden of guilt with them. He wanted to know how they would respond. So God confronts us with our sin. I think Joseph here confronted his brothers with their sin in a very subtle way. By by bringing these things and by throwing them in prison, he was confronting them with their sin of the past. And then secondly, God will challenge you to confess your sin because after three days, Joseph comes back to them with actually a more lenient conditions in some ways. Notice what he does. In some ways, it's easier. In other ways, he raises the stakes. Verse 18, Joseph said to them on the third day, do this and live. For I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison house, but you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses. I think this shows Joseph's care and his love for his family. He realizes he can't have them stay here forever in prison because family home is starving. And he loves his father. He loves his brother Benjamin, so he wants to send them back. One of them is not going to go and fetch Benjamin on his own, and so he says, okay, here's what's going to happen. One of you is going to stay. The rest of you will go. It's the inverse of what he had said originally. Now look at verse 20, and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. Again, do this and live. And he, an apparent pagan, says he fears God. And he again points the finger at them and tells tells them or conditions this on them being honest men. And he knows that they've lied in the past. 
and that their lives depended on whether they would respond the right way. I think it's amazing that earlier Joseph's life was in his brother's hands. Now they find that their life is in Joseph's hands. Complete reversal. And I think it's perhaps the phrase, you are honest men here, that got them, because notice what happens. They all remember their sin. It's like they knew exactly what was happening. Look at verse 21. And they said to one another, we are truly, what? Guilty. We are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. Reuben answered them, saying, did I, not, did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? Therefore, behold, his blood is required of us now. And they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter, and he turned himself away from them, and he wept. Then he returned to them again and talked with them, and he took Simeon from them and bound them before their eyes. Notice in verse 21 that they understood that what they were facing at this moment was directly related to how they had sinned against their brother. They, quote, saw his anguish. That word anguish is a word used for the howling of an animal who's caught. This is if you catch an animal that's caught in a trap and knows it's going to die and it's wailing. That's Joseph's pleading. And we actually did not see this in chapter 37. When we saw Joseph delivered to the pit, the eyes of the narrator turn away from Joseph and we go and we sit with Joseph's brothers while they talk with one another about what to do with this young man. Now we find out that while they're talking and eating their meal, Joseph is wailing and pleading with them and they ignored him. They ignored him, they heard him, and they walked away. Can you imagine how that would have impacted you as a man, how the, the impact that has on your life as you're sitting there thinking about these thoughts? You heard these sounds, you cannot get them out of your head. And he says, notice, in fact, if you have a pencil or a pen, you might want to circle this. He says, the anguish of his soul, therefore this distress. And, and unfortunately, our translation translates those in two different words. That's the exact same word in the, book, in the, in the language of Hebrew. He says, we heard his distress, now we are facing distress. This is directly related. We recognized his and we ignored him, and now we're facing compensation for what we went through, retribution for that, and his blood is required of us, the blood guilt. Now, the one brother who stands out is Reuben, and Reuben here, the oldest, he is indignant, he is angry at his brothers of including him in the guilt. He says, now wait a second. I told you guys not to do this. We all have a brother like this, don't we? I, wa I, I was never on board. And in fairness, Reuben did try to, he preserved Joseph's life by saying, don't kill him, just save him. And then, we'll and he wanted to come back later and rescue him. But when he came back, they had sold him. Remember this. So Reuben is angry here and he claims innocence. He reminds them that he had said, just not kill Joseph. And you know, I just want to point out here that some sins you might think are small decisions and won't matter. You have no idea how it will completely dominate your thinking the rest of your life. Guilt is a real thing. When they sold Joseph into slavery, they never thought that that small decision would have such a lasting impact the rest of their lives. That it would hang over them with such heaviness that there they are years later and they immediately remember that. It immediately comes to their mind this happens so much longer. It overwhelmed them with guilt. And meanwhile, while this is happening, verse 23, Joseph understood everything that was happening. He's sitting there listening to their discussion, and they don't know he can understand them. They think he's Egyptian. They're turning to one another and speaking in Hebrew instead of Egyptian. And because they're speaking through an interpreter, they think that Joseph doesn't understand them. And Joseph hears 
everything, and he knows they heard me, and they still feel guilty about what they did. Joseph has an emotional response. He has presented himself so far as a hardened government official. It says he spoke harshly with them. That means he was, he was very, very short and abrasive with them, but his emotions overwhelm him here, and he's so full of compassion for his family, so he excuses himself so that he may weep. And then he comes back, and the language of this text, I don't know if you noticed this, I never noticed this before, but the language of verse 24 indicates that Joseph himself took Simeon and bound him. Now, why not Reuben? Reuben was the oldest, and because he stood up for Joseph, maybe that's the reason. He then goes to the second oldest, which is Simeon, and he goes to, to this brother, and in fact, of all the brothers, Simeon was the one who irritated his father the most. Joseph was a son that Jacob loved. Simeon was the son that Jacob was irritated by, agitated. In fact, in Genesis 34, we have Jacob confronting Simeon for giving him a bad name. He says, you make my name stink among the other nations. So Simeon's not the most favored child. But every step along the way, Joseph is doing things that were supposed to provoke his brothers into thinking about what they'd done to him years ago. So there he stands, Joseph stands, and he ties up Simeon, and most likely very similarly to how he would have been tied up as his prisoner. Remember this. Numbers chapter 32, verse 23, if you do not do so, take note, you have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sins will find you out. Their sin was before them. Their sin was right there in front of their faces. God was confronting them with their sin. This wonderful psalm of repentance, Psalm 51, he says, I acknowledge my transgressions. And look at this phrase. He says, my sin is always before me. And I think this is the idea, that you think sin is no big deal, but your sin is right there in front of you. You cannot ignore it. You cannot get away from it. In fact, in the New Testament, we have this teaching from Galatians chapter 6 that he says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Don't think you can get away with this. Whatever a man sows, he will reap. So be careful. Unconfessed sin will follow you no matter where you go. So God wants you to confront, to get right your sin. They confronted by their sins, but notice, they did not confess their sins. We keep going, we'll see that guilt actually twists your relationship with God. Lastly, another way Thinking about this, if you see in verse, um, in verse 25, we see what Joseph does. Keep going in our story after he binds uh, Simon. It says, Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with grain, to restore every man's money to his sack, to give them provisions for the journey, and thus he did from them. Now, there's no indication here that what Joseph did was, was, um, was being evil in any way. In fact, he gives them what they need, provisions, and he returns their money as a gift. And the question comes, how will they respond to this gift? It's a pretty innocuous thing. They receive their money back. But, you know, things that seem neutral when you have a guilty conscience become a very big burden. Because you'll notice what happens if you... If you allow guilt, unconfessed guilt, to be in your life, it, it will actually make you forget about God's purposes for your life. In verse 26 through 28, they loaded their donkey with the grain and departed from there. But as one of them opened his sack to give to his donkey, feed at the encampment, he saw the money, and there it was in the mouth of a sack. And he said to his brothers, my money has been restored, and there it is in my sack. Their hearts failed them, and they were afraid, and they said to one another, look, look at this last phrase. They said to one another, what is this that God has done to us? 
They, they, they are shocked. They are afraid. They see that the hand of God is heavy against them, and they place the blame on God. They do not place the blame on themselves. They see God doing things. They notice the judgment about the work of God, and they see what God is doing in a malicious way. They say, God's being mean to us. They don't see God chastening them and drawing them back to himself. They say their hearts failed them. They were afraid and that God is at work. But I'm convinced that because of their twisted perception, they did not see God working as a good thing. They saw God working as a bad thing. They said, God, what are you doing? Rather than taking this opportunity to examine their hearts and say, Lord, thank you for bringing this sin to my life and I confess it. They say, God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you toying with me? They felt like God was against them. And you know, they had a little bit of a point. Because in verse uh, James chapter 4, it says, He gives more grace, but God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. In fact, God often opposes the proud because the proud, by definition, are those who do not want to be humble. They do not want to confess their sin. They have built up their life around lies. But God's purpose for them is good. But they forgot that, and they blame God for, for being mean to them. What is this God is doing to us and then they also will forget God's promises keep reading because when they go to their father in the land of Canaan it says they told them all that had happened to them saying verse 30 the man who is lord over the land spoke roughly to us he took us for spies of the country we said to him we are honest men we are not spies we are 12 brothers sons of one father one is no more the youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan then the man the Lord of the country said to us, By this I will know you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food of the famine in your households and be gone. And bring your youngest brother to me, so I shall know you are not spies, but you are honest men. I will grant your brother to you. You may trade in the land. Now, on first reading, it seems like they're trying to do their best to, put a, to, to just tell their dad the story, but you read closely, and it becomes very apparent that they are putting their best possible spin on the story they can. Did you notice any details missing from their story? See, the Bible has no problem repeating itself. I don't know if you noticed that, but stories in the Bible repeat themselves over. And whenever there's repeated details, what you ought to do in your Bible study, this is a tip, take those two repetitions, put them side by side, and see what's missing or changed. There are some major things that happen that are missed from their story. I mean, how about the, time, the three days they spent in prison? Nowhere in the story. They didn't tell about the first time that they were all thrown in prison and then one was allowed to go back. No, they, they totally skipped over that. How about the time, the money they found on the road? They didn't say anything about the money they discovered on the road. In fact, it figures, it sounds to me like they're trying to navigate this on their own. They're trying to present a story that, to their father that doesn't overwhelm him. And they're, they're, there's their hope that, that this, this works, that he would go along with their story, that, that they would be able to take Benjamin with them. And, and this little hope is, is snuffed out in verse 35 because of what happens next. It says, Then as it happened, as they emptied their sacks, that surprisingly, or behold, each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. You see, what you didn't notice in the first part was when they sat on the road to go caravanning back home is they only opened one guy's sack and they found the money there. They didn't open everybody else's sack. They just assumed it was one mistake. And then when they opened everyone's sack, they saw they all had their money back. And it scared them. Because they thought, how can we go back? Now, how do you misinterpret a gift like that? Guilty conscience. Guilty conscience, you see God's heavy hand on you. And they say, we can't go back. Everyone misinterprets this. It says they were very afraid. And verse 36, Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin? All, notice, all these things are against me. It never occurred to them 
that everyone's money would be in their sacks. Jacob, like his sons, interprets this event as God working against them. They see themselves as a victim of circumstance. God is nowhere. He is a failure as a father, he thinks, who cannot protect his children. That's how Jacob sees his life. And the story that began with the fear of Jacob now ends with him once again being paralyzed by fear. The story that began with Jacob sending his sons off to Egypt so they could get some food ends with him prohibiting them from ever going again to Egypt. He has accepted that he has lost Joseph. He has accepted that he will leave Simeon there in Egypt and he will not let Benjamin go. But then Reuben makes a request. In an effort to give confidence to his father, Reuben speaks up in verse 37. He says, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands. I will bring him back to you. Verse 38, he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. If any evil or calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Reuben's words meant nothing to Jacob. Reuben's word meant nothing to his father. Jacob's assessment, I am going to go to my grave sorrowful. Jacob talks about his death from this point on constantly. He has a depressed disturbed, bitter, angry man, experienced great loss and did not know how to deal with it. He was lied to and did not know how to deal with it. The unconfessed guilt of his son had twisted his perception about God's promises. He has forgotten several things. Think with me, what had God promised him? God said, I will give you this land and to your family. God says, your children will be like the stars of the sky and like the sand of the seashore, innumerable. He had forgotten the covenant of the Lord with his fathers. Whoever blesses you, I will bless, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And in his seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And he's seeing his life in a curse. He was promised blessings from the eternal, almighty God, and now he is foreseeing the opposite in his future. He is seeing nothing but pain. Now, what's the purpose of guilt? If you're still feeling guilty about a sin in your past you have not confessed and not dealt with in a God-honoring way, then perhaps today you need to deal with that in a God-honoring way. God, you know, I said earlier that the world doesn't know how to handle guilt, but God's word does, and God does. He teaches us through his word that God uses guilt to push us to him. It's a warning sign saying something's not right in your life. Don't suppress it. Recognize it and reconcile with God. The question is this, what does God have to do to get your attention? Joseph's brothers faced a lot of testing. They were out of food. They were bossed around by their elderly father. They were bullied by a mysterious Egyptian leader. They were unjustly jailed on suspicion of crimes they did not commit. Simeon was bound as a prisoner and kept as a hostage. Money was returned to their sacks, creating all kinds of mental anguish and emotional abuse for which they were immediately afraid for their lives. What might God bring into your life so you will deal with your unconfessed guilt in your past? What is the proper response to a guilty past? There are two responses, and we'll wrap it up here. One, for those who have never come to Christ to be saved, your sins are not forgiven. I hate to be the bearer of this news, but God says that your sins hang over you and, and the judgment of God is waiting to fall on you if you have not yet trusted Christ as Savior and re, re, been uh, relieved of that. Christ 
offers to take your sins on his shoulders and pay for them all. But if you insist on paying for them yourself, you will suffer the payment for those sins, which the Bible says is death. If you have not yet been saved, you still carry the burden of your sin. But Jesus came and died to save you. And we sang a lot of songs this morning. I I was moved by the songs we sang, the choir sang this morning, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure. And he would send his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away. Wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. And can it be that I should gain interest in his love. Died he for me who caused his pain, for me the one who brought about this. Like like Christ died for me and he died for you. Now if you are still in your sins, there is hope because Christ died for those sins. He paid for those sins once for all and you don't have to pay for those sins anymore. You can cast yourself at the feet of Christ, come to him in faith and receive the gift of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone and this establishes a relationship with God, a relationship of peace. Romans 5.1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's only possible through Christ. So that's the first thing I'd say. If you have unconfessed guilt in your past, you're not saved. You need to confess your sin to Christ. You need to come to him in faith and have that relationship established with him once for all. Have your sins paid for. But there's another side to this. There are a lot of Christians who are redeemed, who have trusted Christ as their Savior, and God calls for you to deal with your guilt in your past because your sins have been paid for. In fact, if you have unconfessed guilt that are, and are saved, you need to come face to face with godly sorrow. Second Corinthians chapter 7, godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. We need godly sorrow. There needs to be a godly mourning in our heart for the sins that we have committed, owning it, confessing it, sorrowing over it because we have this promise we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. God not only promises to forgive, he promises to clean you. And my little children, I write these things to you because you have an advocate, a go-between with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who himself is our propitiation, our payment for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Christ died for you. So confess your sin to him. How do you resolve the guilt that's in your past, the unreconciled, unresolved guilt that's in your past? You face a guilty past by coming to Christ and facing your guilty past. You give it to him, you confess it, and you deliver it over to him and ask him to forgive you for that. You know the amazing thing is that God promises to forgive you. You may not, you may not feel forgiven, but what's God's promise? You are forgiven. What an amazing, amazing truth that we have. You don't have to carry this burden of that will distort your life forever. You can deliver at the feet of Jesus, the one who died on the cross for your sins and for that guilt, so you no longer have to be condemned. Now you can be called a child of the living God. Lord, today we come before you. Undoubtedly, many of us have sin that needs to be confessed. Undoubtedly, many of us have unconfessed guilt that we, have, that we notice, we see, that has made an impact in our life. That all around us, our relationships, uh, how it's followed us through life, 
and it has twisted our, our perspective on you and our perspective on one another. And we see that happening in our own lives. Father, I, I pray that today that we would deal with that for you, before you. <clears throat> that, that even now we would bow our knees before, before the Lord Jesus Christ, confessing our sin, because you promised to be faithful and just to forgive us of that sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, if there's someone here this morning who needs to take that first step of salvation, who needs to have their sins, past, present, and future, dealt with and paid for by the blood of Christ, that today would be that day. Lord, I know that there's some probably need to sit for a moment and confess named sins, own it, and say, Lord, yes, I sinned against you here. Please forgive me. I sinned against you here. Please forgive me. I've sinned against you there. And Lord, by the power of Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead and conquered sin and hell and death, we have forgiveness, real forgiveness. Not just feeling forgiven, but a real, true guilt, freedom that comes to peace with God. Every head bowed and every eye closed, I'll give you a minute to just pray to God now. I know that, like I said, there are a lot of us who probably need to confess some sin right now. Lord, please forgive me. That's all you have to say. Please forgive me for my sin. You name the sin. You own the sin. God promises to forgive the sin. If there's someone who needs to be saved, on the back of your blue card, there's a spot you can mark that says, I need to talk to someone about a spiritual decision. If you mark that, I promise you, we'll get with you this week. But I, I really love to talk to you today. There's no reason you can't pull someone aside. I'll be standing at the back at the end of the service and say, can I please talk to you for a minute? And if I can't talk to you, I'll connect you with someone who can open a Bible and share with you the good news of Jesus Christ and how your sins can be forgiven. There's no reason to go another day without taking that, take, taking that and getting taken care of.